Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. So I've got a small confession to make. I, I have this geeky obsession with the, the history of statistics and and all these you know these characters. Typically, you know, do the plans. average stories. Um, I typically do the story on the. I don't know if you know the Galton story on regression. No. How the regression concept came about. <laughs> no, so I, I, I want to know. Tell, tell me the story. And then the third one is uh, the the story on Pearson and the correlation coefficients. Let's start with average. Where does the concept of average come so from? So average is um, a. It's an Italian, con- Italian word, avaria. It's a, lo- it's a lot of Europeans take claim to it. So one of the word is avaria plus age. So avaria means ship. So as you know, average is uh, a central tendency, mean of central tendency, right? So trying to find out typically how much is there, that's average. But back in the olden days, when they used to go buy a cargo ship, when the ship went down, who would you blame? <laughs> who would pay for it? So what they would do is they would take the avaria, which is a cargo in the ship, and divide by everyone in the ship, and then they would apportion a portion of that to everyone to pay. Oh, wow. So that's the avaria of everyone, and that became average. <laughs> so that's the sum of everything divided by the total number of people. <laughs> so it had a shipping connotation, I had no idea. And what about regression? Well, what's the so <laughs> regression is another interesting story. So if you're, if you, so back in the late 18th century and early nine, uh, late 18th century, I guess, there's this lot of uh, talk about eugenics, trying to understand if, um, it was birth versus nature, which is a virtual argument. And Samuel Galton, who was one of the botanists or the mathematicians in those days, he wanted to prove that eugenics is true and it was all nature and not nurture. So what he did was he, pl- he took a lot of mother plants, mother seeds, and a lot of daughter seeds and started plotting their heights. And what he found was when he started plotting all of those dot points, or mother versus daughter combinations on the chart, and he drew a straight line, he found that all the mother-daughter combinations regressed towards the mean. And that's how we came up with the concept of regression because he found that everybody regressed towards the mean. That's why if you think about it, the whole world will eventually regress towards the mean. Everything will get towards the mean. Right, and which is basically room temperature. Yeah, that's <laughs> the homeostasis of everything, right? So he regressed towards the mean and that's, the re- that's how he came up with regression. And his student was the famous uh, Carl Pearson, ah. who came up with the Pearson's coefficient or the correlation coefficient. So people who currently do statistics wrongly understand that maybe correlation came first and then statistics and regression came next. But interestingly, regression came first. The guy who invented regression, his student, came up with correlation coefficient. See, this has always been my fascination with statistics and to some extent data science because it has such a strong connection to the history of the world, to the way we live, and it, and it affects our daily life. And, and that, of course, is a big part of your, your day job. Yep. I, uh, for those of you who are now curious, I'm talking to uh, Shira Sagar, who's the head of data science and analytics at The Iconic, which is, uh, I think it's, it's one of Australia's top e-commerce uh, right. platforms and websites. And uh, uh, Shira had a, had, has had a long history with data science in, for a number of big organizations, including Fairfax, which is the, the media group in Australia. You know, one of the things that's really interests me, of course, is, is not just the power of data, but its role in 21st century organizations. Mm-hmm. You can't run a retailer without you know, being a data guru. And, and Walmart, I think, are, are yep. famous for the way they use data. Has that been an inspiration to you? Yeah, definitely. So I'm, I'm told, and I don't know if it's an urban legend, that Walmart has more data than the US government does right. um, in their Bentonville centers. Uh, but that's definitely true. Uh, what, the way I like to explain to people when they try to un- appreciate why they need data, 
um, I would say you would not run a company without a finance team. You would not run a company without a, a talent acquisition team. You would not run a company without a tech team. Similarly, you just cannot run a company anymore without a data team. Right. Data is no longer a good to have, oh, let's just get a bunch of people trying to do some stuff, putting it on a presentation. That's not how it is. I think a real company that uses data is one that uses it every day, tries to do all the decisions based on data, and that's, that's really good. What are some of the extremes that a company like Walmart would go to to, to get data? I mean, how do they weaponize it the way they do? So I think people typically just assume that it's just about trying to push products to customers and sell stuff. It's there are two there are a lot of angles of using data. One is obviously increasing your top line, making it more profitable. But the other angle is the more interesting part for me is how do you use data to make your employees' life better? How do you use data to understand areas where you can never go? So for example, I can give you an example for the iconic, right? We could use data to understand if you're at the warehouse and you're picking items from different points in the warehouse, what if I could come up with an algorithm that could reduce the picking time for a person, but at the same time help him or her pick as many items as possible in that time slot right. through a simple traveling salesman problem type of algorithm. Right. That will make his or life easier and that will make the company pro So you're not only doing it for the eventual goal of bringing more money or doing other stuff. It's about trying to do something far better than that. Actually, there's a, there's a fascinating example of that. I mean, I was amazed when I learned that, you know, when goods come into an Amazon warehouse, they just put them anywhere. Yeah. And then when you look at a shelf, there's like peanut butter sits next to, you know, a hard drive sits next to a book sits next to a, yeah. you know, uh, some, like a grocery item. It's because the algorithms worked as more efficient yeah. in terms of sorting problems just to dump it anywhere and it'll actually speed up the picking process. Yeah. Yep. And so therefore you are downstreaming the problem to machines and that's the one thing that I really like to do is the machines should be doing the tough stuff the machines do really well and human beings should be doing stuff human beings do really well. So you can't expect human beings to do complex math and figure out where to put an item. Let the machines do all of that hard work just make it really easy for a human to interact with the machine world. For, for an e-commerce retailer like the Conic, I mean what are the, you know, what are the big data problems that you're generally your bread and butter like, like what really dri drives the business in terms of I data? think the bigger so is it just customer acquisition costs or no. is it so conversion? the way the data stream is structured at the iconic interestingly shows how uh, we approach uh, approach data we have three big data area problems one is obviously the customer data area problem which is understanding customers uh, personalizing the website personalizing the app personalizing the emails and all of this stuff right and then the which other is really about engagement really about engagement really about making the customer experience more easier, better, and then think about it, we have 78,000 products on the website at any point in time. I don't expect any human being to go through all 78,462 in a point in time. But if I can make that experience for him or her easier to shop and browse, that will make their lives better and we're actually doing something that will help them shop easily and better. So that's those kind of problems are one area of problems. The other area of course is the marketing area, which is trying to understand who our customers are, where do you go for acquisition, what channels are good, and what kind of segmentation should we do and all of this stuff. But the bigger chunk of work that we do is on the other the side that people don't see, which is on the merchandising side. What product should we buy? How much of that should we buy? When should we stock it? When should we make a purchase order for it? Or where do the where does stuff come in the warehouse? How do you stock it? How do you oh, figure right. out the optimal assortment? So, so the, the business to business side really, yeah. like of how you guys run your operations. Yeah. And so those are the problems that are the complex, muddy problems or the more tricky problems. They're not simple and straightforward. And those are not problems that you could just do and not hear about. For example, customer-facing problems. And I don't mean to say customer-facing problems you don't hear back about. Of course, you do hear back about some customers saying this is not good. But when you build something for employees, people you work with, 
they will come walk on the lobby way and come and tell you this is bad and so that's the difference here so when we build stuff people here when they walk by they're like you've say you've changed my life this has been really amazing and that I mean, that's the kind of well, thing one of the differences of talking about these sort of issues in 2019 versus say even 2015 is that you know the rise of machine learning and automation uh means that we can potentially take a different approach to solving these problems yep. uh how has your thinking changed i, I mean do you really see the role of the data team doing the same thing now that they're in 5 years or, um, or do you think ai is going to pick up so know, some more of this so the way we do it is we don't think of it as stages um so that's a different to how we operate we just try to solve problems for what they are uh, problems so if for example let's take a merchandising problem at the end of the day what a buyer or a planner wants to see is how many units of this particular item do i need to buy let's say hypothetical problem right now it can be a simple dashboarding reporting problem where you just query the database look for what's happened in the past and then just show up and then the person makes a decision but then you can augment it with some ai as you call it or machine learning or forecasting that says these are all the factors i have considered and therefore you need to buy but augmenting is what we do right now and to your question we already do a lot of this understanding analysis and augmentation yeah. what will happen is applying it and that application part will probably what we want to work on the application part is not letting the buyer even have to spend time saying yes go buy see, this this is the co- this is the point right isn't it it's yeah. like what is the correct decision point for human yeah. beings yeah. um i mean because if you have all of this data and you can use deep learning to essentially automate a lot of these decisions around merchandising and stocking and you know even even around some elements of engagement what are the difficult decisions that only human beings have the context to make yeah. so the difficult decisions that humans make are the ones that are extremely subjective and contextual and we've still not figured out for example trends in fashion is typically thought of to be a very complicated topic and we're still trying to figure out how do we <laughs> codify trend in a way and so we're working on some algorithm that can take a full if you upload a full fo- fi- picture of your whole outfit it can say how does it pair with each of them based on our 10 million images that's seen on the web right. but it's still something that the machine does not something that a human can do much better so there are some angles and contextual elements like fashion which are too hard for a machine to still understand but the common elements like how many unit if we know for a fact that 10 units will sell we need 5 units by next week i don't think a human being should come and say yes buy 5 units the machine should be making that decision right So um when you think about uh, I guess the journey you've been on with all of this what one of the first stages is getting your kind of data governance right mm-hmm. and and sort of having a a kind of a consolidated approach to the way you collect data and store it in the same place has that been a is that usually something that big companies struggle with yeah so the way the, it's interesting again it's more of the chicken and egg problem right so people don't do data governance because they don't have enough data and they wait for it and then when they have data they can't do data governance because they have too much data and they should have done data governance before <laughs> so it's just that thing so what we've done at the iconic tech luckily is before we started on this whole journey we realized that data governance is the bedrock of how all of this happens so we've split into three pillars one is the access and privacy pillar where we make sure the right people have access to everything nobody waits for like 5 years to get access to a tool or a report or a data whatever it is the other pillar is metric rationalization and trying to understand how all these metrics live together and the business rules and the definition and the third one is the pillar of giving confidence to people which is if people use a metric we can tell them this is 100% confident you're right this metric is right. right this is a predicted metric we're only 70% confident so you can use it at your own peril so that kind of a framework was set up and then on top of this a lot of initiatives were tied to them 
and that's how it's been lucky enough for us to go on that journey. And that. But you, you don't want to be in a situation where the data team becomes like the, you know, the the protectors of the sacred knowledge. I mm -hmm. mean, you want to be able to distribute out a delegate out a data-driven approach and decision making across the organization. In an ideal world, how do you get a leader to consume data and be smart about the way they make decisions? Like, what what, what sort of is the mental software they need to be running in order to get the most out of? I think for any any leader, any department to start using data, they first need to trust that it's the right thing. Because I like to think humans come with a lot of experience and expertise, and they'll only trust it if they can see it that this is the right thing, it aligns with what they already know. And I don't mean to say we need to provide a story that is extremely biased so that they can believe it. They always look for some examples. So let me give you an example, right? So an example of this is say you build an assortment optimization algorithm. Right. It can optimize all your assortment and where to put what stock where. Now if I go to a warehouse and the supervisor has been running warehouses for 25 years and I tell him or her, this is the algorithm, just run it, nobody's going to buy it. It's not that they, they don't like data. This is this is the uh, the algorithm aversion problem, right? Yeah. yeah. So they're like, oh, it's a, first, it's an algorithm. Second, I don't understand it. Two, third, there's a lot of math. And fourth, you don't know this business. I've been doing this for 25 years. So the way we approach those kind of problems is open it up completely, show them what's going in, what are the variables, how have we considered it, what is the logic, ask them for variables, then they workshop, they come up with variables. They tell, have you considered this? Have you considered these factors? Have you considered this scenario? And then when you put all of that together, and then the eventual output of the algorithm is where they can interact with it and change stuff like parameters. No, they long, no longer call it our algorithm, they call it their algorithm. Right. And that's how they buy in. They buy in with credibility. So so getting getting the stakeholders to be involved in the design of the model is yep. sort of key to adoption. Yeah. It gets a bit harder though when it's a machine learning algorithm though because you don't even sometimes know how it makes its decisions. No, so I'm talking about a machine learning algorithm. So the assortment optimization is an optimization algorithm, a simple, it's a, an optimization algorithm where you give a lot of equations and it optimizes right. it. Right. So right. for example, in this case, it was a matter of helping them visualize if they change say the number of people that were available on a particular day and the carriers and blah, 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 they could change all those parameters because they understand that business context and they'd say, okay, now optimize it and it would give a result. And then we'd say, this is what you said should happen. This is what the algorithm should happen. And over the course of 30 days, you'll have this much improvement in productivity. They'll be like, I trust that, now let's do that. The, the, the business context is, is actually really valuable input. I, I mean, I, I was in Japan recently and I, um, I was talking to the, the head of data science for Rakuten, the big e-commerce yep. business. And they were saying that what they do is they have these data summits where they get the head of data for different divisions to all come together you know, uh, regularly. And they basically just swap war stories about how they're weaponizing data and how they're you know uh, using it to address specific problems as a way of you know cross learning in the organization yeah uh, what have you seen or you know what are you doing at the iconic to kind of make people better consumers of data so it's always continuously going back so what what people call the empathy driven approach to building stuff uh, applying the CX concept to data, which is how are people interacting with data, what is their customer experience with using it, and continuously going back to it, trying to see. So, for example, if you build a dashboard, a simple example, if you build a dashboard, we would continuously monitor how many people use the dashboard, when do they use it, what do they use it for, and if they don't use it and they've asked for it, we delete it, so that then they either feel the, feel the need for it. <laughs> so you take the toys away. <laughs> yeah, if they don't use it. That's an example of dashboards, right? 
the other extreme examples of models and everything else that we put into production once you built it it goes there and they were continuously measuring against a success measure it could be number of sessions number of users number of dollars spent and then we are always tracking it and when it doesn't meet a particular criteria either the model is sculled or we rebuild it or something happens so there's always continuous revisiting of what is it's not build and forget right. but build and continuously revisit i mean a big part is the cultural side of how data is used in meetings and in conversations and one of the things that fascinated me about amazon for, for instance is that you know if you want to get a decision made you have to take a you know a six a six point memo in that has a stack of data appendices so it's actually part of the standard meeting approach yep. uh, have you how, how have you noticed the way people use data in meetings do they tend to show like a chart or is there sort of a more structured approach that so interesting you say that because uh, we follow the exact amazon approach right. to meetings we have memos so all the meetings start with a memo and you have reading time yeah we have a 10 minute reading time where everyone's expected to read it and mark questions so it's all on google docs so everyone can comment on every single sentence right so what's what's the structure of the memo so the structure of the memo starts with a typical what is the problem why are we solving it then why how did we solve it what is the data point for each of these problems therefore what decision are we making and what will be the success if we make this decision how do we know that the decision is success and the whole appendices of graphs and charts and everything so any memo that gets done any decision that gets made that's a big decision it gets done through a memo so that it's recorded for posterity huh. people can go back and see why the decision and so the data team helps with uh, yep. pulling together that data so how, how is it When, who, who drove that? I mean, that's a that's a big cultural change. It, where, where, where did that come from? That I think it it came from our CEO Patrick. So he believed strongly in that way of operating, where we don't do PowerPoint presentations at all. It was his brainchild to actually follow a memo pattern. Right. So we can go back into 2013 and see if a decision was made. Why was it made? Because there's a memo that says this was the reason why we made this decision. Therefore, we know what was the reason. And and has it? Uh, how do you think has changed the culture of decision making? Does it does, has it made things so less political? So the there are two things for me if I come from a consulting world where everything you everything <laughs> is a powerpoint presentation right like yeah. you try to make it as fancy and colorful and like every time it's a challenge to make the thing possible but here <laughs> it's all about writing it down and funnily enough when you start writing it down you start realizing that all of this is not like you read it two times after you've written doesn't hold water doesn't make any sense but in a powerpoint you can get away with writing one line and then making big numbers with a sexy transition yeah but but data can also depending on how it's characterized can be positioned out of context it's yeah. it's not necessarily absolute truth either yeah but in a in a, in, a, in a written memo like structure there is a flow so you just can't say things that are contradictory so you need to understand how you're writing it down so it helps you understand how the problem is and how you discuss it. so so when people are having a discussion around a memo does it tend to be around the semantics of the memo then how the how the points interrelate as opposed to you know whether they think it's a good idea or not to make the decision uh sometimes it does so, uh, depends on how see how much experience a person has reading a memo and operating with it right. but i think some people here some of the leaders are really good with memos like you can see them attacking at the right sections they'll see it in the 10 minutes you would have had like 25 comments saying i don't agree with this number i know that this is my benchmark here i don't think this is right i don't think it's right yeah. and then if it's a really good memo it'll be like yep these are all comments but we don't not worried about it let's make this decision so in 15 minutes you've made a decision instead of having to make a presentation and try to explain why to make that decision i mean using that as a starting point I mean, what 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 do you think the most the most capable and valuable human beings in the 21st century data driven organization is going to be if you can automate a lot of the uh i guess obvious data driven decisions who are the most valuable people like what is the perspective that they bring that 
uh, you think really will give an organization the an X factor? I think uh, anything that, like I said, anything that needs subjective decision making, something that needs context, something that needs more. Not than just fashion; it could be the, it should, could be the customer experience it, as well, right? It could anything that needs of more than a few degrees of connections and trying to put multiple systems together. I don't think machines are still at that space where they can do it. And by that, I mean where there's a lot of unstructured information, like you'll have to understand somebody's body language and read a, what they've written in a, in a customer experience, uh, an interview, what they've said in an interview from on a customer experience point of view. Plus, when you go into the market and how people react to stuff, there are these are cues that no, not a machine these can are, do. These are more humanity skills than STEM skills, though. Yeah. So what I mean is when, <laughs> the, when humans start exhibiting more human-like stuff, somebody has to understand what those human-like stuff are. Because humans will, basically what's happening with humans is we're getting so much time freed up. Like we don't have to, back in say 50 years ago, we had to spend time washing our clothes now, washing machine does it, dishwasher does it. So you have so much time and you spend all of that time watching Netflix or playing video games. And then maybe we've that when that gets boring and new things come up, you'll probably start doing all those things. So your time gets freed up more and more for you to do other human-like things. Yeah. And we are starting to exhibit newer and newer traits and only humans can understand those traits. I think in many ways, online retailers were the first to really evolve the use of data to become more effective because they got an instant, I mean, they knew they'd either make a sale or they didn't. So they, they could close the loop on a lot of their decisions. Uh, what do you think that other more traditional industries or organizations can learn from online retailers today? in terms of the way that they design their organizations and, and the way they make decisions. Yeah. So I don't know if you know this, in 2011, Eric Schmidt said in a conference, in one of the Google conferences, that he does not consider Yahoo or a Bing as a search competitor. For him, the biggest search competitor back then in 2011 was Amazon because they actually know what people want, whereas Google can tell you what you, when you ask it, Google can tell you what you should be finding. Right. But Amazon already knows what you want based on how you shop and what you shop and what you say. I think that's the answer to that, your question is, all these retailers are always trying to answer what you want and not trying to understand, just find ways to grow sales or try to optimize randomly. It's always from a customer-led point of view. So if you look at Amazon or if you look at, for example, the Iconic, all the answers, all the questions, all the algorithms you're trying to do is what will a person want? What will the customer want? What so, will the so it's about want? anticipating intentions and Intention, desires. Intention at a, at a human being level and not at a at some weird brand <laughs> level or a line of business level. Right. Like if you go to an insurance company, it's not about will this person want a better premium. It's about how do we optimize this premium rate so that the loss at say third level is cheaper. So maybe it's all at a premium level or product level. We don't do anything like that. We always start at a customer level. What will our customers want? This is fascinating because, I mean, Amazon now is starting to explore building an ad platform. And if you think about it, they may do a better job of advertising than Google because of what you say. They're much closer to understanding people's intentions, their desires, their wants and needs. Yeah. And they could use that to build lookalike audiences to retarget across almost any other media platform. Yeah. And if you think, if you make people the center point of your business, and not the products the center point of business and that's probably one of the main reasons why social networks are so successful is they made people the center point they give people what they want which is a way to connect with other people facebook yeah, yeah. twitter linkedin that's what they do and, and we've seen with cambridge analytica like just how dangerous and powerful that can yeah. be as well that it doesn't take many data points to really be able to reconstruct someone's personality yes. and so when you put people at the center of something and then try to understand 
reconstruct and build everything around that as the center of the universe, then things change a lot. How, how do you do that? I mean, even if you're designing your data team, it, it, you can be too caught up on operational analytics. How do you maintain that human side of, of data? So I think anything that we present here, and thankfully at Iconic, we're always asked, what will this do for our customer? And so we have a North Star. Our North Star always is the net promoter score of the NPS. Yep, you are building this amazing delivery prediction algorithm. What will this do for our customers? It will make our customers 20% happier. Build it. It will not do anything to us. Don't, don't waste time building it. There's no <laughs> point building it. So that's, that's how the argument is. So everything is eventually tied to, if you do this, what will this do for our customers? Is this something our customers are asking for? Have they told you that they want this? And so we are customer-led. We are... We are user-led in terms of how we operate and how we build stuff. That's, that's really With that in mind, I mean, if you look at it, we're starting to, even consumers are evolving the way they buy, the way they do things. Even the, the rise of smart speakers uh, is leading to a situation where we may start shopping even without screens. Um, how, how do you see the future of retail uh, potentially unfolding in the, in the next five years? Do you think that we're going to see a, a kind of a profound shift in, in the way we buy? That's an interesting question because a lot of people have asked that and the way I see retail having, like what, whatever has happened is the way people buy and the, the way they consume has changed but they still want stuff and they'll still buy stuff unless we have a Star Trek like trans, whatever, whatever that machine is <laughs> that can create stuff out of uh, energy. I think people are still going to buy stuff. Where they buy it from and how quickly they buy it from is, is all that has changed. So they used to buy, go to a market, go to a shopping center and buy and now they can buy it online so they buy more of it. Maybe in the future they don't even have to go to a shopping center. They can just think about it or... Well, if you really know people's um, desires, you can send them stuff before they even order it. Yep. And so that's the interesting thing. So people will always want things, they'll always buy things. It's just about what does buying look like and what does wanting look like might change, but the same wanting and buying will still be there. You know, I, I was sort of just thinking, reflecting a little bit about uh, something you wrote about, uh, I think it was, I think you wrote an article, it was, uh, 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 love in the time of R or something like that or you, you're really comparing the, the kind of the quantified self and statistics with sort of self-examination and how we live our life yeah. uh, what can a what can a statistical approach to to I guess your own life change the way you operate have you done this yourself have you yeah. actually run yeah so our analysis on your own life yeah so the one that you probably <laughs> read love life and R was me trying to an analyze uh, the chats that I had with my wife was my girlfriend then and how we chatted, what words we used, what happened, eventually how did it go on. Uh, trying did, to did, did she find this a very romantic exercise? She did, for, and then I tried to repeat it for a couple of years and then <laughs> I think she got bored with it. Um, then the other thing I did was try to look at all my finances, then I looked at all the meetings I had and tried to figure that out. But one example that I tell people uh, is if you know poison um, series or poison process, so standing in a queue is a poison process for example. What I tell people is when you're standing in a queue and you, when you see the other queue moving faster, that's always people's perception. You're stood in a queue and you feel there's a parallel queue, that queue is always moving faster. That is actually a statistical process called PASTA, which is poison arrival C time averages. So if you read PASTA and if you understand it, what you'll realize is if you're in a queue, you'll always feel that the other queue is moving faster. But if you stick to your queue, you'll actually end up getting served first. This, the same logic applies to when you're driving in the road. If you're in a lane, that's one poison process. The other lane is another poison process. If you jump a lane, you're never going to reach first. You're always going to stick in your lane. So, if if so, you, so statistically speaking, if you're in a really slow customs line, you should just stay in it. Yeah, if you stay there, unless you see that that guy is really 
like behaving weirdly or the guy is no longer in the queue it right. it serves better so and that's good and the similar thing i they are suggestion i give to my teammates when we do these stat sessions in the company is tell people when you're going out to a burger joint you know how there's always you feel like you're sitting in a, standing in a long queue and just after you purchase there's nobody in the queue that's a poison process the poison process is suddenly a lot of things happen in one go and then nothing happens so you just go for a couple of hours observe that and then you can find the perfect time to go which will be 12:43 <laughs> not 12:30 or not 12:50 if you go then there'll never be people and you're just exploiting how the world actually always happens in some form of statistic distribution and you can use that Uh, once again, a, a wonderful illustration that statistics is not math; it's actually just life. Yeah, it is life. <laughs> and I try to keep telling people this. This is a beautiful article about how normal distribution is this most beautiful, all-encompassing distribution that can tell the truth about everything in this universe. And it's a really interesting paper. I could probably share it with you sometime. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com/slash-between-worlds. Between Worlds.